God's Word in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it as boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, would you use your word to encourage us? to see the hope there is in your righteousness and that we might fight faithfully for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at the various elements of God's armor that we must put on to be able to stand firm spiritually. And it started with the belt of truth. We said the soldier would tuck the extra fabric from his robes into it attach his sword to it, secure the breastplate with it, and he'd gather a sense of confidence as he cinched his belt on tight. And just as they would keep their belt cinched the whole time, so the belt of truth keeps us ready, prepared, and engaged in the spiritual fight. You know, belts can be uncomfortable, and the soldier may want to loosen it or remove it at times. Yet until the battle ends, or the commanding officer says, they can do so, they can't take it off. And we noted that the military imagery highlights that God is our commanding officer, not just a spiritual advisor. Thus we follow our captain's orders by marching forward with a mission of truth. And we ended by noting that to wear the belt of truth is to know, believe, love, and act on the truth. In fact, the rest of God's armor will be doing just that. It is taking the aspects of the truth of the gospel and applying them to our life. We consider how Jesus gives us righteousness, peace, salvation, etc., and then how to use those to win the battle. You know, the spiritual battle is not some mystical or esoteric battle. It's a battle in our minds. It takes the truth of the gospel and applies it to our life. Today is the breastplate of righteousness. And soldiers have known throughout time that you can't go into battle and leave your vital organs exposed. You may be able to sustain losing an arm or a leg, or even all your arms and legs, but you can't sustain losing your heart, having your chest cavity crushed, or any such blow to your vital organs. Thus, people have worn chain mail, they've worn metal breastplates, and today, people wear bulletproof vests. In the spiritual conflict... A shot through your vital organs occurs through your understanding of righteousness. Thus, this morning, to win the battle, we'll see you need to know righteousness. You need to believe 
righteousness, and you need to love and act on righteousness. But first, our first section, no righteousness. Now, as you know, the words righteousness and righteous are not commonly used in our vocabulary. Sometimes righteous gets used as an adjective, such as many decades ago, the singers, the righteous brothers. Other times it's used to describe things that we delight in. Oh, that wave he surfed, that wave was righteous. Or we sometimes attach the word righteous to self and use it negatively. They are so self-righteous, always thinking they're better than everyone else. When the Bible uses the terms righteous or righteousness, it refers to a state of moral perfection, being just, being holy. And though we don't talk about righteousness much, we all deal with the underlying issue. The underlying issue is what makes us presentable or in good standing with others. We all care what other people think about us. Now, we don't all care about the same people's opinions, but everyone has someone whose approval they're looking for and whose judgments matter to them. Some people, even in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, are dying for their parents' approval. Others could care less about their parents, but their boss is a sig signature of approval. Their co-workers liking their ideas. Their coach giving them an attaboy, or someone else is who they live for. Now, people will often profess, well, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. And yet, I've never actually found someone who lives like that. You know, I once knew a man, he, he professed to me numerous times with great pride, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. Well, he eventually left the church I was at because what people thought about him. He could profess it all he wanted, but when the rubber met the road, he cared what people thought about him. Recently, I was listening to an interview of a man who worked as a professor at Harvard, and he discussed how he'd worked there for a couple of years, and then he had a crisis of confidence, thinking he'd never write another paper worthy of reading. In a very vulnerable moment, he kind of opened up to his dean about what he was thinking, and his dean sat there sober, listening, nodding, until suddenly he just broke into uncontrollable laughter. He was just rolling in laughter and couldn't stop himself. And the man in the interview was saying, I just couldn't understand it. Here I am pouring my heart out. I'm laying bare my deepest fear. And this guy's laughing at me. And then finally his dean regained his composure and said, You think you're the only one? This place is full of neurotics hiding behind their secretaries and their 10-foot oak doors fearing the dreaded question, What have you done for me lately? Just put your head down and do your work. Believe me. Everything will be okay. And I could give numerous other examples of how we care about meeting the standard of someone. The point is, we all do it. And ironically, we think others are dumb because they want to be presentable to people that we don't value their opinions. So the athlete mocks the academic. Who cares what you got on the test? What college you go to? That's so dumb. While the academic looks over and goes, why do they keep looking at their biceps? Who cares? You see, the thing is, we all care about someone and something. So the issue is, to whom are you trying to be presentable, and by what standard are you able to achieve that? Whose approval in life are you ultimately seeking? What do you have to do so they'll consider you to be good, to be worthy of being in the group, to be, as the Bible declares it, righteous? What about God? Do you care about His approval on your life? 
And what does he say you need to be like or do to meet his standard? Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Later, Jesus will say in the same sermon, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He said this because the Psalm 11 says, The Lord is righteous. God is morally perfect. Never does anything just and is holy, holy, holy. Thus, we obviously have a major problem because no one is perfect. Tragically, we don't fully grasp how far from perfect we actually are because we compare ourselves to others rather than God. You know, to whom you compare yourself makes all the difference in your opinion. You know, I have a friend who in late high school, early college, played a massive amount of video games. And he was really good, or so he thought. He could beat everyone that he would get online and play with, and so he thought, you know, I'm going to be a professional video game player. If you didn't know that, there are actually people who can make a living playing video games. But, it's a whole other discussion. But then you can do it. And so he was going to do this. And so to do this, he said, well, i got to get my name known. So he went to a tournament in Dallas. Yes, there are video game tournaments. And there... He got in the first match, and minutes in, he realized, I'm not very good. When he's playing with his friends, he was incredible. When he went with the best, I'm a novice. I barely even know how to play this game. Well, how much more are we a novice in compared to Christ's righteousness? You know, how much more are our good deeds dwarfed by Jesus' completely righteous life? His love led him to give up eternal and perfect fellowship with his Father. His love persuaded him to give up the freedom from having any needs to being a baby who was utterly dependent on every single aspect of life. His love guided him into relationships with people who he knew would betray him, would mock him, would kill him. His love led him to giving his life for all who would believe in him. And that only skims the surface of his love. We could revel in his patience, his goodness, his compassion. And then if we compare our love, our patience, our kindness, our compassion, or lack thereof, then we realize how we fall very short. Now the point is not that our actions don't help anyone or don't matter to God. The point is that compared to Christ's perfect life, Compared to a perfectly holy God, they fall infinitely short. And thus, we are in a desperate situation. Because to be presentable to God, we must be perfectly righteous. Which leads to the next section, believe righteousness. So the second section, believe righteousness. At the beginning of the service, I read from Philippians 3, and I want us to turn there. It's just over probably only a page or two in your Bible. We're in Ephesians 6, flip over to Philippians 3, and I want to look at verses 8 and 9 again. Philippians 3, verse, beginning of verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
right before this, Paul had given this long list of how he thought he was righteous for all the things he did for God. Now, as a Pharisee, he believed we need God's grace and also we need to follow the Old Testament law dutifully. Yet when Paul compared all his righteous keeping of the Old Testament law, all the things he did for God to what Christ did for him, he says he counts them as rubbish. Now the Greek word for rubbish refers to trash or animal excrement. And yet Paul, though he'd been one of the best of the Pharisees, when he compared himself to Christ, he thought my stuff is nothing better than trash or the things that that dog does. He didn't give up hope of being presentable to God. He just said, I can only have it through Christ and his righteousness. That is why verse 9 says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. And the Bible throughout shows that the righteousness we need can only be received as a gift from God. I mean, all the way back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve, when they lost being presentable to God and to each other, how were they covered? With God sacrificing a lamb to cover them. In Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abraham believed God, and then it says, and God counted it to him as righteousness. God counted righteousness on him. Or Galatians 2, 21. If righteousness were through the law, obeying, doing things for God, then Christ died for no purpose. Now notice this amazing fact that God's salvation through Christ is so much more, nothing less, but much, so much more than just forgiveness of sins. You know, it's amazing news that due to Jesus' sacrificial death on your behalf, God will wipe away every single one of your sins. Yet even more amazing is that we don't merely have a clean slate before God, Rather, it's even better that because of Christ, we're given the righteousness of God. You know, Jesus took our sins on the cross, and also, he gave us the perfect righteousness of God. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner, but a perfect person. As said before, God's standard is that we must be perfect. Not that we're just not imperfect. We need to positively be perfect. And so Jesus not only took our sins away, but he gave us his perfect life. Flip back a few books. We're in Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, and then 2 Corinthians. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So if you're going backwards, again, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says... For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I think we're probably all familiar with the prodigal son who wasted all his money on wild living while his brother served his father at home. Now imagine if the story went a step further and the prodigal not only wasted all his money, but he went massively in debt and he couldn't leave the pig's swine. He couldn't leave all them. The pigs, he had to stay because he had debts to pay off for years. Then imagine the elder brother going and trading places with the younger prodigal son. The prodigal would then get to go live in the wealth that his brother had rightfully earned. 
Whereas the older faithful brother would live in the poverty that his younger brother had earned. You know, that's what happens when we trust Christ. All the bad you've ever said, thought, or done is taken by Christ. That's what it's saying here in verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. As well, all the good that Jesus said, thought, or did is given to you. That is, that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, friends, I don't know what you think of when you think God looks down and looks at you and he says, well, that's so-and-so there. Maybe you think, a mistake. They're a screw-up. They always do everything wrong. Well, that's not what God looks down if you're in Christ. Rather, God looks down and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Not because you've been fastidious in your religious devotion. Not because you give money to the poor or faithful to your spouse or anything you do. No, in God's court, you are perfectly and eternally righteous due to Christ. Thus, the breastplate of righteousness that Ephesians 6 is talking about that covers our vital organs is Christ's righteousness. In fact, all the armor we need for the spiritual battle comes from Christ. Earlier, Elaine read for us Isaiah 59 and verses 16 through 17 said, God saw that there was no man to bring justice to deliver them and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Jesus conquered. Jesus won. Jesus purchased our righteousness and our salvation. He took our sin. He gave us complete righteousness and acceptance with God. All we must do is stop looking at ourselves as good enough and by faith look to Jesus as our Savior. Romans 4, 5 says it this way, And to the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now what's the person? How's that person described? They're the person who knows they're ungodly. They know that I don't meet the standard. I can't do it. What do they do? It says they believe in Jesus. And what's the result? Their faith in Christ is counted as righteousness. It is faith alone and Christ alone by which God reckons us or declares us to be righteous. Now imagine, it's probably something I would do, being on a cruise ship and falling off. Now they're not going to turn that massive ship around and pick you up, but they're going to send a helicopter out and they're going to send someone and they're going to strap them to all these harnesses and then they're going to drop them in the water and he's going to say, hang on to me. So what is it that brings you your salvation in that situation? Well, it's Grabbing on to him. In a similar way, faith is grabbing on to the Savior. You know, faith is when we stop treading water of trying to get God's acceptance and we look to the Savior alone. And whether you have little faith, great faith, you will be accepted and saved. B.B. Warfield writes, The saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior, on whom it rests. It is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. My point is, what matters is not the degree or the depth of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. 
We don't get to make it up there often, but I love hiking in the Rocky Mountains. And imagine you're hiking along, and you stop to get a drink, and you look down, and you go, what's that in the water? And you pull it around, and you go, it's a piece of gold. And then you go, wait, what's that? And you get another, it's another piece of gold. And all of a sudden, you stop thinking about taking a break, but you're plunged in the creek, and you're digging through, and you're, you're filling your pack with gold. And you're working, and you know why you're doing it. You don't really mind that your fingers are getting full of dirt, that your knees ache, and you got this heavy backpack now, because you're confident. I've struck it rich. Now, what happens if you go to the gold buyer, and he says, well, actually, that's pyrite. That's fool's gold. Will the degree of your faith really matter? Does the fact that you completely abandon your hike, work for hours, and hauled home this heavy pack, will that change anything about the situation? Well, of course not. The important thing is not your faith that it's gold. It's whether or not it's really gold or not. On the flip side, if you'd sit on that creek bed and seen it and go, eh, I don't know. I guess I might as well take it. Oh, another one. Eh. And you take them all down. You really went, I don't know. And you go and you take it into the gold buyer and go, is this anything? He goes, where'd you get this? And you go, I found it in a string. Is this, a, this is solid gold. Well, did your lack of faith change how much the gold is worth? Well, no. Because it has little to do with your great faith or little faith. It's the object of our faith. Likewise, little faith in Christ makes you righteous. While great faith, confident faith in anything or anyone else leads to eternal destruction and ruin. Okay, but um, we're talking about spiritual battle. What does all of that have to do with fighting a spiritual battle? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that leads to the last section. We need to love and act on righteousness. So let's look at three ways this affects our spiritual battle. First, when we love and cling to Christ and His righteousness, Satan's darts bounce off the breastplate. Listen to Revelations 12.10 and its description of what Satan does. There it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. You know, Satan accuses us by reminding us of the sins we've committed and rubbing our face in them. Now, it is good to have sorrow, to have guilt, to have remorse over sin. You know, people who don't have that, we have a word for them. Psychopaths. They can do stuff and they feel no remorse. But what Satan is doing is he's not making us look at our sin to feel remorse and repent. Rather, he uses our sin to steal our joy in Christ, to zap our zeal for holiness. Satan whispers, you said that? And you've been a Christian for how long? You just did that and claimed to be a child of God? You know, children look like their parents. You don't look like God. You watched and delighted in that, and you claimed to be righteous? Well, what do we do in those situations? Well, there are three deadly and common ways to respond. The first one is devotion to God. This is Martin Luther who went to a Roman cathedral and said a prayer on his knees on every single step and would go up step after step on his knees and by the top his knees were bloodied and trying to be faithful enough to God. 
He would meticulously reflect on his life and his day and then go to the confessional for hours. His priest would get frustrated and angry saying, Martin, only come back to me when you have something real to confess. Now, I might be running in the wrong circles, but I don't think most people in the U.S. are thinking that devotion to God is what really matters. There are some that still exist, but by and large, most people think, well, religion, that's no big deal. So, are people not caring? Well, not at all. Because the second way people try to deal with the whisperings of guilt is doing good. Now, this may sound like the prior one, but here it's largely devoid of God. And this isn't limited to one group of people. Thus, it may be, I feel great because I'm a vegetarian, or because I mock vegetarians. It might be that I'm good because I'm the type of person who fights for social justice, or... I am the person who fights against wokeness. It might be that you feel good because I fight for people to have the right to abortions. Or you might feel good because you fight to end the possibility of abortion. Now, I have opinions on those and I think those issues matter. But the point here is people look at what they're doing and when they hear these things of, oh, you've done these horrible things, they go, yes, but I've also done this and this and this. I've done so much good. It outweighs my bad and they're trying to do more good than bad to relieve their conscience. The third way we respond, respond to the bad we've thought, desired, or done is just denial. This occurs when we tell one another, you're enough. Now, it's completely true that no one is worthless, for each of us is God's image. And while we are not worthless, we are unworthy of God's love. This is the case for, as Jesus said, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Similarly, we often deny this idea of perfection as being what we need. You know, when someone's discouraged, someone's down, we often say, oh, it's no big deal. No one's perfect. That's what we tell. Now, if we're talking about something like spilling milk, or you failed a science quiz, then okay, that has some validity to it. Yet when we're talking about being with the one and only, eternal, holy, holy, holy God of the universe, that's a different matter. We're talking about the being who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no sinner has ever seen or can see. For that, we need perfect righteousness. So if devotion to God if being good, if denial won't thwart Satan's accusations, what will? What breastplate can ward it off and keep it from driving shame to our heart? Well, probably our songs say it best. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on. My person an offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience, His righteousness and blood, they hide all my transgressions from view. Or, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what the breastplate is. I dare not tr trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do we do next? 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. And this is where the belt of truth that we looked at last week upholds the breastplate of righteousness. For this is not just some legal fiction. It's not as though God says, eh, yeah, they sin, but you know, I'm kind of that being that forgives, so it's no big deal. You're all innocent. Forget about it. No, this isn't just a good idea. Jesus truly lived a righteous life, died for your sinful life, and by faith, those are switched. If you've trusted Christ, then God's verdict on our case has been read. Righteous in Christ. And God never reopens a case. In Christ, you are righteous. Case closed. Thus, when Satan accuses you with your sin, you can in fact own the accusation and say, Yes, that's true. But God declares me righteous in Christ. Rather than despairing by seeing your sin, you can delight in seeing Christ. So that's one way we fight the spiritual battle with the breastplate of righteousness. The second one is, if we put on and love the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, then we can win the battle of responding to criticism. You know, what type of vest are you wearing in the spiritual battle? You know, it's funny how trends work. When I was a little kid, we would go to church, especially on Easter, we would wear three-piece suits, and we had this wonderful vest. We still look so cute. But then, for some period of time, vests were out. No men wear vests, and now they seem like they're back. But I'm not very up with these things, so maybe they're not. But nonetheless, many of us, though a vest might look nice, we're trying to wear them for our protection. You know, a vest might be helpful in a nerf battle. It's not going to help you in a spiritual conflict. It looks nice, but it offers no real protection. And when people attack us, if all we're wearing is our own good deeds, if all we're wearing is denial, if all we're wearing is our devotion to God, then we're wearing the suit vest. It looks nice to everyone, but it's not offering, offering any protection. And when that's the case, what do we do when someone accuses us? Well, we normally do one of two things. We sinfully blow up and attack the person who brings the complaint. Oh, yeah? Ha, <laughs> Well, what about the fact that you always do this and that? You're such a jerk. You know, we, we don't listen to their critique. We attack them back. Or the other thing is we may not blow up because we become self-righteous and defensive. Oh, really? I guess you didn't notice that the house is clean. How do you think that happened? Oh, well, you just don't understand. I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't first. Yet if we have the... Kevlar breastplate of Christ's righteousness. We can respond by hearing the critique while not necessarily affirming it all. Well, why and how can we do this? Well, we should want to do this because what if, what if they are 90% wrong in what they're saying? Well, don't we want to hear the 10% that's true? Don't we want to learn and improve in that 10% way? And we can do this because we already know, you know what? I'm much worse than they're probably even attacking me for. You know, in fact, they might be 99% wrong on this, 
but they'd be 100% right in the many of the things they're not bringing up that I know that I've said, done, and thought. As well, we can realize it's all right to take some blame for things that you did not do, and you don't always have to defend yourself. Yes, a good name is better to be chosen than great riches, and there are times you should make sure that people know you're innocent. You're done small matters. You don't have to make sure everyone knows that you're right. How can you let others consider you that you've done something wrong? Because Jesus did it for you. He didn't commit any of the sins for which he was punished, but he took that punishment for us. So you, in turn, can rest in peace that though you know you're innocent, maybe they'll never know. And you can rest in the fact that Jesus looks at you and knows that you are, in his sight, righteous in Christ. So a third way, and lastly, we can use this righteousness, is that by loving Christ and his righteousness, it leads us to act on it with a righteous life. In other words, we'll find motivation to engage in the spiritual battle. Flip back one more time to Philippians. So if you're still in 2 Corinthians, you go to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to look at verses 12 through 14. So Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, these strong words of pressing on, of straining forward, and the like, are right after Paul realized that what he did for God didn't make him acceptable to God. Once Paul understood that his deeds didn't make God pleased with him, and that they were worthless compared to Christ, he didn't then say, oh, so I get to live however I want. I can do anything I want. You know, it's often claimed that way. They look, if we proclaim that you are completely righteous before God by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, that then everyone's just going to say, well, then they're just going to go do whatever they want. They're not going to want to live a righteous life. And we have to admit, sadly, sometimes that's true. Sometimes people abuse the grace of God and they live like that. But when one is truly saved, Titus 2.14 declares, they will be zealous for good deeds. And Paul here is an example of how much energy he obtains from the fact that he's no longer doing, serving God to be made righteous, but rather that he is righteous in Christ. He obtains it from acting not from guilt, but rather from joy at being completely righteous in Christ. So contrary to the claim that preaching Christ alone will remove our zeal for God, I've in fact found the opposite to be true. That is, if you tell people your efforts, what you do is what matters, well then, that removes any lasting zeal for God. Yes, guilt can be a strong motivating factor, yet often those guilty feelings start to languish, and then our motivation goes away too. Along with that, when drowned by guilt, we don't feel energized to act righteously. You know, that guilt over sin often spirals into a whole myriad of other sins. 
that initial sin then leads to self-pity, which leads to laziness, to being irritable, which leads to prayerlessness, a lack of love, and on and on. And that's when we need to return, confess our sins, and know that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when then we live out of the righteousness of Christ, and that motivates us. Thus, well, I think in Ephesians 6, the breastplate of righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Remember what it said in verse 13 and 14. And having put all the armor on and having done all, stand firm. There's something we need to do. And the standing firm is that after putting on the breastplate of righteousness, we act righteously. In fact, a lack of your own personal righteousness could be clear evidence that you have not put on Christ's breastplate of righteousness. Consider 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And the flip side is also true. If you're not practicing righteous, then you're probably righteousness, then you're probably not righteous as he is. Or Hebrews 12, 14 declares, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yes, we are completely saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but then that should compel us, that should spring us forward to want to live a righteous life for God. You see, friends, the spiritual battle is a fight over whether God gets the glory or not. Remember Jesus' words in John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, that you live and do righteous deeds, and so prove to be my disciples. So yes, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you up your guilt within, then yes, upward look and see him there who makes an end to all your sin. But when Satan tempts you to sin, to new sins, you don't just go, well, I'm righteous, so it doesn't really matter what I'm about to do. No, at that point, when he tempts you to sin, stand firm and fight against it so that God gets the glory through your righteousness and that you prove that you're his disciple. Now, your salvation won't be ruined if you sin, but you will diminish your joy in Christ. You will dampen your fellowship with the Spirit. You will tarnish the gospel and your witness to it. You'll be spitting in the very face of the one who died to make you righteous. And what greater joy could there be than following our Savior and living a righteous life and glorifying God? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have a spiritual battle every day. And we need our vital organs protected. So Lord, would you help us to put on the breastplate of righteousness that we would each day realize it's not our efforts for you. It's not our works but it's what Christ did for us and that we stand loved and accepted in Christ. And yet, Lord, may we not fall into that error that then says, well, what we do doesn't matter. May we be propelled forward to live lives that glorify you, that are engaged in the fight so that the devil might be defeated and you might be seen as glorious. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.